The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word, open with me to Exodus chapter 6, as we continue walking through Exodus together. And as you're turning there, um, if you've been here any at all, you know already that I'm an Andy Griffith fan. And uh, we try as often as we can, between me and Greg, to to throw a little bit of Andy Griffith trivia in here. But uh, setting sort of this passage up, there was an episode where Andy comes into the courthouse and Barney is, uh, is doing what Barney did quite often on the show. Uh, he, was, uh, he was turning in all of his equipment that, that came with being a deputy. He was, he was uh, handing in his badge, he was handing in his holster, his gun, his one bullet, his tie, all those things. And, uh, and Andy said, whoa, 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 what's, what's happened? What, what has, what's gone on? And uh, Barney proceeded to say, oh, it was, it, it was, I'm being made fun of out in the community. And Andy said, what do you mean you're being made fun of? He said, well, I, I didn't want to say it, Andy, but I got to tell you, it was your own boy. And Andy said, what? It was my own boy? He said, yeah, he wrote a poem about me uh, on, the, on the wall there in the bank. And he said, I saw it with my own eyes. He said, I want to read it to you as evidence, as foolproof evidence of the crime. And he, he reads this. He pulls out this piece of paper, and he, he says, Andy, this is what your son wrote. There once was a deputy called Fife. He carried a gun and a knife. The gun was all dusty, and the knife was all rusty because he never caught a crook in his life. <laughs> and this, was, this just tore Barney up, and he was done, and he was turning in everything, his whistle he said, I replaced the, 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 the P in there, but I'm not going to charge you for that and all this. He's just done. He's had it. If, you know, if you're a fan, I'm quoting all these little things, because, and you know, you, you remember all these things. Well, Andy goes on to explain that he knows that it couldn't have been his son. It couldn't have been Opie. He said, well, how do you know it wasn't Opie? I saw him in my own eyes. He said, well, first of all, Barney, I know my own son. I know my boy. And second, he hadn't learned how to read and write yet. Just classic, great, clean, healthy humor. Well, I tell you that little anecdote because Moses has come to a place where he's ready to turn it all in. He's ready to give up. He's ready to walk away because time and time and time again, he has met resistance. And just as Barney felt the shame and the ridicule and the mocking of the son of the sheriff, his own boss... Sometimes in the church, in Moses' case, when it came to the Israelites, God's own people, we can begin to feel like it's even coming from within. It's even coming from our own people that are mocking and shaming us. But I want to tell you that just as in the case of Andy talking Barney out of resigning, God in his word today talks Moses out of resigning, and he would say the same to us to remain faithful, to keep trusting, to keep pressing on. Let's look at our passage this morning. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. So the Lord said, actually let me back up and go to verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. 
But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers, verse 14 says, their fathers' houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, and Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of, of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzael, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uzael, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, and the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nishan, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph, these are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses. To whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Now we come to a passage like this and we say, Why all of a sudden did God insert a genealogy at this place? It seems that everything's building and, and Moses is wrestling with this and God sort of takes a time out and just throws in a bunch of names. And you sit there and you say, I'm glad he has to read that. I'm glad I don't have to stand up there with a microphone and read that. Or uh, let me just go ahead and tell you, if you're thinking that that's how you really pronounce those because that's how your pastor did it and you will go out and speak authoritatively on the subject, you are wrong. Don't do that, okay? Because uh, I'm sure I butchered those, all right? But, but why? Why would God insert this genealogy here? It's almost as if We've, we've had this buildup. You know how when you're watching a, a drama or some sort of miniseries or, or something on TV and the drama builds to a height and guess what happens? Commercial break. Isn't that true? That's what it feels like here. It feels like all of a sudden we've taken a time out in the story and God sort of inserted this, this commercial. But this is really not hard for us to understand. I'm going off my notes here, but it's not hard for us to understand being from the South. In the South... Don't we often have conversations with people, and before the conversation can go any further, someone says, who, who is your people? Where are, you, where are you from, boy? Who's your family? That's almost what's going on here. We, don't, we, we do this here in the South, and they certainly would have done it there in biblical Hebrew times. Okay, So this is what's going on. 
here's the first point I want to make to you out of this passage. And the first point is going to be fairly quick. The second will be, will develop at length. The first point is this. The man of God or the child of God can become so discouraged by the people that he's sent to reach or sent to lead that he wants to quit. The man of God or the child of God can become so discouraged by the people he's sent to lead that he can become so, he, he wants to quit. He just wants to give up. That's what we see here in these first opening verses, verses 9 through 12. I won't read them again, but Moses is at the point where he said, look, the Israelites didn't even believe me. Oh, yeah, they believed me in the first, first place, but when it got hard, they, they, they ran, God. What makes you think now that Pharaoh will believe me? And this seems like this story, this repetitive chase that's going on between Moses and God. God keeps trying to persuade Moses, and Moses keeps coming up with excuses. Do you know that we live in South Carolina, and, uh, and not just South Carolina, but all over the United States, there are pastors leaving, walking away from their churches at record numbers. Up until a year or two ago, South Carolina led the nation in pastor suicides. Why is that? Because pastor goes to a church and he believes God's called him to serve this people and to lead this people, but he comes up against a people that's just like any of us, just like that pastor. They're sinful and they become obstinate in their sin and they refuse to follow his lead and he becomes so discouraged that he wants to quit. It's not just pastors and churches. It could be you. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you're a student middle school, high school, below that or above that in college, and, and you've witnessed, you've, you've sought to, to lead a friend, a classmate, someone there that's with you to the Lord, and you've, you've labored over this long and hard, but they've only disbelieved. And it's made things awkward, and now you are sort of this social pariah at your school, and, and nobody really wants to have anything to do with you. You're discouraged in this because you go into your school and you think, God's called me here and I want to live for him. I want to point others to him. But it seems like the more you attempt to do that, they just get further and further and further away. Maybe you're here and, and, uh, and you're a parent who has a teenager or uh, beyond, maybe an adult child out of your home, and they're wayward. They're walking away from the Lord. In fact, it doesn't feel like they're walking away anymore. It feels like they're running away from the Lord. It feels like everything you tried to instill in them and tried to, tried to put into their life and shape the way they believe and live their lives, they've just kind of thrown out and they're trampling over it. And you wonder, why? Why did, why did we do that? Was it all for nothing? And you're ready to quit. Maybe you're here today as, as, a, as a wife who has an unbelieving husband or vice versa. You can't get your, your spouse to come with you to church. You can't get them to talk with you about the Lord. You, you mentioned praying together before a meal, and that causes World War III, and you just you, you want to lead them to faith in the Lord, but you don't know how to go about it, and you're just out of the place where you say, I'm just done. I'm just ready to quit. There could be all sorts of situations, and maybe I haven't named yours, but we could come up against all sorts of situations where we believe God's placed us in a specific location with specific people for us to lead them toward him. And it just seems to be getting worse, and we're ready to quit. 
Notice what God does. God doesn't say to Moses, you know, Moses, you're right. I hadn't thought that through. They didn't believe you. Why would I think that Pharaoh would believe you? God never reasons with Moses that way. God never says to Moses, Moses, forget it. Let me, let me think about this some. Let me go back to the drawing board, and I'll come up with a different plan. Instead, what God says to Moses is, Moses, get back to your post. Get back to the task. It's what we see there in, in the opening verse, in verse 10, where, where God says to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Verse 13, he ends in, in that same section. He says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the Israelites and about Pharaoh to bring them out of the land. Moses is having a pity party here, and instead of capitulating to Moses, God simply says, I know it's hard, but get back to the job. Church, here's what I would have you to, to see in this passage, that while we can become so discouraged by the response of the people that we have been sent to lead, that we want to quit, our task is not defined by the response of those we're sent to lead. We are called simply to be faithful. God says, I know. Now get back to your post. It's, it, it, the reality is God does know. How many times have we turned our back on Him, have not listened to Him, and not just us, but generations before us, dating all the way back to the Israelites. We're going to read in the next, next couple of years as we walk through this book together of how over and over and over again the Israelites refused to listen to God. At one point, because Moses is found gone too long, meeting with God, by the way, they abandon God altogether and make a golden calf and begin to worship it. So how many times, how many times will we say, but God, they're not listening to me. And God simply says, they didn't listen to me either. But I'm going to continue to do what I've been planning to do from before the foundation of time Get back to work. Be faithful. I was encouraged as Dane taught this morning in our Sunday school class that throughout all of history, ever since God birthed the church there in the beginning, in in Acts, for 2,000 years, it has been this process where men and women of God have just faithfully told others about Jesus. And people have come to know him as not just some figure in history, but come to know them, come to know him as Lord and Savior and God. And God has continued this work for over 2,000 years. God isn't looking for used car salesmen who know how to close the deal. This is how it was explained to me by a pastor I was serving under at the time, still in seminary, finishing up seminary actually when he told me, you're going to be a great evangelist one day, but you've got to figure out how to close the deal. And I remember thinking, how to close the deal? What, what, am, I, what am I closing? Is this simply just a formula that I can follow? And that if I, just, if I just get them to parrot a certain set of words in some order, does that mean all of a sudden heaven rejoices because they are now converted to Christ? Know how to close the deal? See, God's not looking for those who are skilled in some formula to be able to trick people in to becoming Christians. 
What God is looking for is God is looking for men and women and children of God who will say, whether they listen to me or not, I want to speak up for him and I want to live for him and I want to look for him as my source of contentment. That's it. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to labor for fruit. The fruit he will produce. We are simply called to be faithful in what he's asked us to do. There is labor in that, but the production of fruit is not our responsibility. Imagine hearing the words that God spoke to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, when he, when he called Jeremiah to go, he said in Jeremiah 7, 27, So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. Imagine that calling. Here's what I want you to do, Jeremiah. I want you to go and I want you to speak these words of mine, but they won't listen to you. Isn't that frustrating? Do you, how many of you love talking to someone knowing they're not listening to you? Now you know my pain. Every Sunday morning, right? Now I know some of you are listening, but I, I also know that some of you are, are just counting down the minutes. I used to be there. When I was a kid growing up in church, I could tell you the exact number of lights in the ceiling. I could tell you which ones needed to be changed because the bulbs had burned out. You know, I could tell you all sorts of things. I could, I could tell you the, the number of panels that covered up the, the, the pipe organ, you know, pipes, whatever's back there. I never really knew what was back there, but I knew how many there were, right? See, God calls us sometimes to go and speak to a people who will never listen to us. But along the way, he says, there will be those who will be faithful. The second point I want to kind of bring to your attention today is, uh, I'm skipping a lot of my notes just for the sake of time, the, the second point is this, the, the people of God can feel forgotten and illegitimate at times, but this genealogy is going to teach us a whole lot about what's the truth in those situations. Okay, that's, that's a long point, and, and what you might ought to do is just write, the people of God can feel forgotten and illegitimate, dot, dot, dot because I'm going to give you some details to fill that in. The first is this. God never forgets his people. God never forgets his people. This seems like a very odd place for a genealogy, but there are genealogies all through Scripture. Genesis chapter 5 is a prominent genealogy. Genesis chapter 35 and 36, prominent Genesis 46, we looked at that at the beginning of this, this series of walking through Exodus, where Jacob and his children go to Egypt for the first time. There are prominent genealogies all through Scripture. Numbers, the book of Numbers is all about recording uh, genealogies and family trees and lineages. First Chronicles is the same way. The, the Gospels open up, and Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 give us genealogies of Jesus that were specifically aimed at proving that this baby, this little child, was a direct descendant of David. See, genealogies are placed in Scripture not just to give us places where we can fast forward in our reading. Genealogies are, genealogies are placed there by God to show us some things that are true of Him, the first of which is God never forgets his people. Just as these individuals that we read here, and I'm not going to read them all again, just as all these individuals with all these weird names are, are forever memorialized in the pages of Holy Scripture, 
In the same way, I would tell you, if you're sitting here today, if you are a child of God, if you are in Christ, you are forever remembered. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name, the Bible says, is written on those nail-scarred hands of Jesus. You are forever remembered. Now, Thabiti Aniabwile, who, uh, who is, is planning a church, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C., um, said this, there's not a soul that Christ has purchased with his blood that he will be forgetful about. There's not a situation that his people will be called to endure where he will in any way divert his attention elsewhere. If you are the Lord's, you're the Lord's. God doesn't forget his people. Moses here may feel like God has forgotten him. He may feel illegitimate. that I can't do this. Who am I? I'm not qualified for this. Pharaoh's never going to listen to me. And God, in the giving of this genealogy here, reminds, Pharaoh, or reminds Moses that he is not forgotten. The second point in this, when, when we feel forgotten and illegitimate, we need to be reminded that God doesn't call the qualified. That God doesn't call the qualified. And I know this sounds cliche, but I want to sort of develop this just as we walk through some of these names. God uses not the qualified, not those of, of this world that you and I would look at and say, now there is a person that God would want on his team. Instead, God uses those who are weak and insignificant, that are not very bright, I mean, I stand here in this pulpit every week realizing that there's nobody that should, that should think I should be up here. I face the challenges of my, of my intellect every single week when I labor to study and labor to come across this, these passages. It takes me probably longer than it does a lot of other pastors because I'm challenged with a lot of things. But nevertheless, God has called me to be here to do this. God uses ordinary people. Some of these names are, are, are quite funny. Um, it, it listing out in this genealogy, the name Palu means extraordinary. You say, well, what's so funny about that? Well, probably the only people that thought he was extraordinary were his mom and dad. That little baby's born. Look at him. He's so special. I've wanted him all my life. He's extraordinary. But then he went to school. <laughs> and the teasing began. Oh, look, here comes extraordinary, you know. Another name in this, this, uh, this listing of names, Korah. This one, I, I, I kind of, this one hurt me when I found out the meaning of this name. Korah means baldy. There's nothing spiritual about that. It just simply means baldy. And some of you men in the room, you can identify with me. It means baldy. Uh, I remember when I was a youth minister in Georgia, I would go to the schools regularly, and I would go to the lunchrooms, and I would just hang out with the kids and, and, and have lunch. And I was sitting down at one of the tables in the, in the cafeteria uh, of the Armerchie Middle School one day, and uh, I'm sitting there with some kids, and this other kid that I don't know walks up behind me, and he stands right behind me, and he announces to the entire table, Ha! You're bald! To which I wanted to say, yeah, and you'll never have a girlfriend or something. I just wanted to come back with him at something. Imagine Korah. He comes out of the womb and he's named the very first thing his parents notice about him. 
He apparently has no hair. He just comes out and he's just this bald little baby. And so his dad says, ha, look at Baldy. And that's stuck. And that's his name. Imagine if you would have been named the very first thing that your parents noticed about you. I remember when Micaiah was born, Lana's dad came in the room and he said, look at those feet. Those feet are huge. So imagine, you know, Micaiah from now on would have been huge feet or big feet or something like that. Uh, Imagine, see, you all are, are, you shouldn't pick on your son that way. That's the, that's one of the perks of this job, right? (laughs) Another name in this list, Nefeg. Nefeg means clumsy. I wonder if, if they waited until he was a little older and he just, he just kept being clumsy. They explained it away at first. Well, he's learning to walk and all this stuff. He's, you know, he'll grow out of that, but he never did. And so they finally just said clumsy. You just wonder. God uses ordinary people. God also uses God-fearing people. Some of the names in this list are, are not funny names. They're not names like baldy or clumsy or extraordinary. But instead, they're names that point back to God as the giver of all good gifts. And they look at these children as gifts from God. Names like Shaw means my prayer's answer. Eleazar God has come to my aid. Elzaphan, God has treasured. Elkanah, God has created. Jochebed, God's glory. These are moments that are beautiful in the lives of these parents when they first become parents and they look at their children and they say, to God be the glory. God has answered my prayer. Look at the treasure that God has given me. He's looked upon me with favor. God uses God-fearing people. God also, though, uses people with skeletons in their closet. Verse 15, Shaw, while his name may have, been, may have been my prayer's answer, we're told in the text that he's the son of a Canaanite woman, which reminds us and would have reminded the Israelites that, that they were never ethnically pure. Verse 20, Amram married his father's sister, and we have to remember, this is, he's marrying his aunt, but at this time, the law's not been given, and so, so the, the, there's nothing here that has ever been stated that, that it's wrong to marry your aunt. Some things we look at and we say, wouldn't that kind of be self-explanatory? You know, you, you, my dad's sister, I, don't, I never grew up wanting like, to marry my dad's sister. Uh, Alma, I love you, but never that way, right? Um, but he marries his father's sister, and later in the law, that becomes explicitly stated as sin. Verse 21, Korah was a cousin of Moses and Aaron. And number 16 tells us that he led a rebellion where he led hundreds away in the wilderness to rebel against Moses and Aaron. He, he felt, hey, I'm a cousin of these guys. I've, just, I've got just as much right to authority over these people as they do. Maybe they should be following me instead of Moses and Aaron. And he, and he leads this rebellion. And when, when Korah rebels against Moses and Aaron, he's not simply rebelling against these men. He's rebelling against God himself because Moses and Aaron were the authority figures over them. And that's why God does what God does. In Numbers chapter 16, 31 and 33, as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them, under Korah and his descendants, those he was leading in rebellion, split apart. 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. The story is recorded in Scripture as an amazing story. You mess with God's authority. And God takes that personally. And he takes these, the Korahites out. And he just swallows them up, closes the earth, and says, next. And he just moves on. This is the glory and the grandeur of our God. Nadab and Abihu, another skeleton in the closet of Moses and Aaron. Nadab and Abihu served in the temple and one day decided to get creative in their worship. They kind of got bored with, with how, the, how they were called to worship God, and, and they, they decided to get creative with it. And so they took strange fire, the Bible says. They, they, took, they took fire, and, and, and well, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And these are not pretty things in Moses and Aaron's family tree. These are ugly things. These are skeletons in the closet. And how is this going to be encouraging to Moses? Well, Moses is going to learn that it's not going to be his credentials or his pure past that's going to make him usable in the eyes of God. God uses faithful people as well. Gershon and Kohath and Merari teach us to, to the, the meaning of faithful service in the worship of our God. Numbers chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, and the guard duty of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting, and it, in other words, their responsibility serving in the temple, in the tabernacle, their responsibility was the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar, and its cords and all service that's connected with these. In other words, the descendants here of Gershon were those who kept the curtains. They were in charge of the curtains. Numbers chapter 3, verse 31, and their guard, their guard duty involved the ark, of the, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels of the sanctuary with which the priests minister and the screen, all the service connected with these. He's talking about the Kohathites, the, the descendants of Kohath. They were responsible for all the furnishings within. They were, in other words, as one commentator said, the interior designers. Numbers chapter 3, verse 36 and 37 the Merarites, their appointed guard duty, the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and all their accessories, all the service connected with these, also the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords. In other words, as another commentator put, they were the structural engineers. They did the heavy lifting. You say, well, why do you tell us all that? Because I want you to know that God uses faithful people, people that are not in the limelight. They're not standing up and where they get a lot of attention. They're just showing up and doing their job. They're, these are the people that, while it may seem mundane, every bit of this is essential to the worship of God. Today, these would be the, the, the ushers. These would be the members of the first impressions team. 
those who unlock and lock the building, those who set the thermostats in this building, 12 alone in this building, those who prepare the elements for communion, who cut the grass, who maintain the buildings. These are the people here we're talking about. They're just faithful in their service. They just show up and they just do their job. They, they show up and they make coffee. So that when you walk in, you just walk down there and you just take a cup and you turn it over and you get yourself some coffee. But there's been somebody there faithfully serving. And this is who God uses. It was one of the, the Kohathites who wrote Psalm 8410, which said, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's one of, one of the descendants here of Aaron, one of, the, one of the Kohathites. God uses faithful people. God also uses zealous people. One last name in this list is Phineas. I won't give you too much detail because it is a sordid story. But go home, if you will, and read. Um, children, read with your parents uh, if, if they will allow you to do that. Parents, you want to read this text first. I'm not going to steer your kids away from Scripture, but I'm going to say this one probably needs a little bit of supervision. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but Numbers chapter 25. At that time in Israel's history, there was Midianite um, temple prostitution going on drawing the Israelite men away. And there was one in particular that wanted to take that into the very house of God. And Phineas rose up, and the Bible describes what he did. He takes a spear, and he puts an end to it right in the middle of that act. And God is so pleased with that act. This zealous man who wants the glory of God to be preserved, that God assuages his wrath toward Israel. And he establishes an everlasting covenant with, with Levi. Go home and read that for yourself. Numbers 25. See, God never calls the qualified. God uses these ordinary people, these faithful people, these people with skeletons in their closets and the like. God never calls the qualified. But the last point that I'll make for you today is this, that God does qualify the called. God does qualify the called. Notice how selective this genealogy is. Only three of the founding fathers are named in this, this genealogy in verse 14. All we see there, and it looks like it's starting out normal, just like, just like the one in, in Genesis 46. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, these are the first three sons of Jacob or Israel. But from there, it begins to get a little more specific. Of these three, Levi gets the most attention. Reuben and Simeon get one verse apiece, but Levi gets ten verses devoted to his sons and grandsons. So it's beginning to focus in on Levi. Of Levi's three sons, Kohath gets special attention. Kohath's sons are listed, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And even their sons are listed. And this differentiates this son from any of the others. At the center of this entire genealogy, from, from verse 14 to 25, Aaron is at the center. In, in verses 14 through 20, Aaron's ancestry, it traces his ancestry from Levi through Kohath to Amram. In verses 20 through 25, it traces Aaron's ancestry to Nadab. Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, and Phineas. 
So Aaron's here at the center, and, and everything's either coming, showing how things got to him or things going from him, from there. Even, even the two women in this genealogy that are mentioned by name are closely related to Aaron, his mother and his wife. And the Bible here is very specific, and it gives us clues as to what this is all about. This is about Aaron. It's not so much about Moses. Moses is the one who's saying, God, what makes you think Pharaoh will even listen to me? The Israelites didn't listen to me. What, what, would, what would possess you, God, to think that Pharaoh would listen? And God launches into this genealogy about Aaron. Not about Moses, but about Aaron. Aaron is Moses' own brother, but specifically about him. Before and after this, um, this genealogy, Moses uses another little phrase. What makes you think that he's going to listen to me? I speak with uncircumcised lips. He says this ahead of time, and he says this after the fact. This frames this genealogy, and you say, well, why are you taking the time to point this out? Because I want you to see that the Word of God has design in it. This is not just a random collection of stories that are meant to entertain us. This is God showing us Himself. Moses uses this language of uncircumcised lips And Moses is very, very, very aware of how he doesn't measure up, of how illegitimate he is, of how unqualified he is. i got to tell you, many Sunday mornings, I come to you in this pulpit so aware that I have no business being here except for the call of God on my life. I stand before you as a man saying, if it's up to me keeping my life clean and bringing to you the Word of God, then we're all doomed. I don't have any business standing here. And that's what Moses is saying. God, look, I don't have any business going before Pharaoh. Why have you chosen me? This is what he wanted from the beginning. God, please send someone else. And in the giving of this genealogy, God showed him and us that not only are Moses and Aaron true Hebrews, but that they are also connected to the tribe of the Levites. They are descendants of Levi, and therefore they are not just true Hebrews, but they are legitimate leaders of Israel. That Aaron is a worthy partner for Moses. That Moses stands and he worries. I don't don't think I can do this, God. And God says, I've had this planned from before the foundations of the earth. Look at your family tree. I've guided this entire thing. I've brought you here, not just to practice those, those responsibilities of a prophet, but I've also qualified you to lead the people as a priest and to point to the great high priest that would come. So here's the conclusion as we walk out of this today. This is one of those passages that we would be tempted to skip over, that we would say, in the middle of right here, God throws in a bunch of names. Surely the pastor will run by those and get to the meat of the plagues. And the reality is God in his word has so much for us right here. 
we can become so discouraged in our lives where, we, where we're already living, where we're already working, where we're already at play, with the people that are around us, with the people that, that we see every day, that we talk to every day, that are acquaintances and friends with us on social media, that are in our lives and that for whatever reason have stayed connected in our lives. We, we've not been placed there by accident. God doesn't call the qualified, but He qualifies the call and He's placed us right where He wants us to reach a specific people to His glory. And sometimes we can become so discouraged in that because it gets so long. And we come up against so much opposition. And we get right to where Moses is and we say, God, I can't. I'm done. God, I just want to walk away. I just quit. And God says to us, get back to your post. Don't worry about producing fruit. That's my job. You know, I watched my dad for not, he worked for 38 and a half years at at Alcoa Aluminum. And and, uh, I wasn't alive for all of that. But, uh, But I watched him all through my childhood and even into my early adult years. And in the first years of of Lana and I's marriage, I watched him get up at 420 every morning, hit the road by 450, drive an hour one way to go to work, to drive a forklift, to load rolls of aluminum onto train cars, pull double shifts, sometimes not coming home, not getting home until 10 o'clock at night, to get up and do it all over again. I watched my mom faithfully for years pack that black lunchbox and sit that thing up, up on top of the fridge to watch my dad go out every single day to go to work. There's nothing glamorous about that. My, my dad didn't climb the corporate ladder. He didn't, he didn't end up with a, with a great portfolio. But my dad was faithful. And my dad's work ethic and his faithfulness shaped me to become who I am today. It is still shaping me to become who I am and who will be. And God, what he's saying to us is, I don't want you to be superstars. You're not all going to be rock stars because guess what? Their attention is not supposed to be on you. I just want you to be faithful. I just want you to get up. I just want you to take your lunchbox. And I just want you to go to work. God says, get back to your post. Don't worry about producing fruit. I know where you are. I have not forgotten you. I don't call qualified people, but believe me, I qualify the called. So get to the task. Church, let's get to the task. Amen? Let's pray. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.